As Pastor Thabiti uh, mentioned to you, we are in a mini-series in the midst of our series on Luke uh, from the prophecy of Malachi. So there are four chapters, and so over the period of a couple months, uh, we'll walk our way through uh, Malachi, me and Pastor Matt, Pastor Jeremy, and uh, our brother Jahil Richards. so I call your attention to the book of Malachi. I don't have the page number. If someone could just shout it out. 801, 801 in the Bibles, the pew Bibles that were handed out. The book of Malachi. And we're starting at the beginning, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let us pray. Our Father, now we come to hear your word. And as we just finished singing, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit says. Give us hearts and minds that are willing to receive and to do what you tell us to do. God, do your work in us. May we not leave here in the same condition we came. May we meet you in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in a uh, household where we rarely, uh, I can't really think of anything, I can't recall anything right now, any time, when we rarely said, I love you. We didn't really hug. Wasn't a lot of touchy-feely uh, going on. But I knew I was loved. I was certain of my folks' love for me. I never doubted their love because they showed me in so many ways. Now, I'm not recommending that. I have tried uh, with my own children to, to hug them and tell them I loved them when they were little kiss them. When they get to be six-foot-tall men, you don't do too much kissing anymore. Uh, But to assure them of uh, my love for them. And certainly my wife, I tried to tell her I I love her probably most likely not enough. Sometimes I jokingly say, you know, 25 years ago when we got married, I told you I loved you. If I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. That's, that's, That's a joke. That's a joke. She understands that's a joke. She understands my humor. I've told that joke many times. She always, she always rolls her eyes or something. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not recommending that. But my point is, my, my point is, in, in my household, even though we didn't show it in outward ways and we weren't uh, profuse with our expressions of love, I knew they loved me because they showed me in a multitude, a multitude of uh, ways. Well, in the scripture text here, the people of God have a question about God's love. The book of Malachi, as 
You know if you are familiar with the Bible, it closes out the Old Testament. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And in its closing verses, it anticipates the coming of the Messiah, of Christ. In fact, the words of God through Malachi were the very last words God spoke for 400 years until the time that he sent the angel Gabriel to Zechariah and Mary to announce the births of John the Baptist and Jesus, which we heard about recently in Pastor Thabiti's messages from Luke. Malachi here is writing to a people whose hearts have grown cold towards the Lord, people whom the Lord had brought out of a decades-long Babylonian captivity, perhaps as long as a century before uh, Malachi wrote, but they had come out of this long 70-year captivity to another nation. Malachi here advances his message uh, through a series of disputations or or arguments between the Lord or, or Malachi speaking on behalf of the Lord and the Lord's people, Israel. Malachi exposes the sins of the Lord's people and anticipates their impudent responses expressed in a series of of questions. In fact, if you listen to these questions, what comes to my mind is a a disrespectful teenager or or child. You ever been in a situation as a parent or or as a teacher or someone dealing with young people, and you say, uh, uh, John, you did such and so. What? What? Me? What? What are you talking about? What? That's what we hear in Malachi consistently. The Lord says something about his people and what they've done, and, and they respond, what? What are you talking about? Like impudent, disrespectful children. At the very beginning of the prophecy of Malachi, we'll look at the first question the Lord's people raise, a question concerning the Lord's love for his people. Malachi will show us that the Lord's love for his people is evident in his choosing them and his preserving them. The Lord's love for his people is evident and the fact that he chose them, and he yet preserves them in the faith. I have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, looking at this text, I wasn't sure exactly how to approach it and how to come at it, uh, so I'm borrowing an outline, and I want to give credit where credit is due, uh, because to my surprise, when I was looking through one of my commentaries, one of my one-volume commentaries, on Malachi, and I got to the end of the chapter, it was my friend that wrote it, uh, Dr. Uila Yilpet. He's someone I knew personally back in Illinois when he was uh, uh, earning his doctorate degree. He's a native Nigerian, and he came here to earn his degree, and he has served uh, back in his uh, home country, and I think the family now is is back here in the States, living out west. But uh, this uh, outline I borrowed from Dr. Yilpet. First thing I want you to notice from this text is the people doubting the Lord's love, doubting the Lord's love. Right there in verse 2, the first part of verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? What? What are you talking about? You love us. How have you loved us? Based on the internal evidence in the book, scholars reason that Malachi ministered, as I said, about 100 years after Israel returned from their 70-year captivity under Babylon, so sometime in the 5th century B.C. In light of what the nation of Israel had been in the past, especially at the height of their glory and power under King Solomon, their state at the time of Malachi was probably disappointing at best. Though Israel had been restored to her land, life was not the same as it had been before their captivity. The size of their territory was much less. It was just a fraction of the kingdom that Solomon ruled over. The population of the nation was much smaller, and the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem was not nearly as grand as that first temple of Solomon's that had been destroyed. 
Perhaps it was because of disillusionment or, or disappointment in the aftermath of their long period of captivity. But whatever the reason, Israel had somehow grown doubtful and uncertain of the Lord's love. Perhaps they were asking themselves, if the Lord loved us, why did he allow all this grief and destruction to overtake us? If the Lord loves us now, why hasn't he restored us back to our former glory? God, where is the proof of your love? How have you loved us? Perhaps you too are doubting God's love. You know, life has a way of treating you uh, that you don't always come out of it unscarred, unscathed. Disappointment, discouragement can cloud your vision. Once upon a time, you were sure of God's love, but, but then you lost your job. You experienced a significant financial downturn. Doors of opportunity have seemed to close every which way you turn. Maybe your marriage has failed. Or if you've never been married with each passing year, it looks like you'll never be married at all. Maybe your children haven't turned out the way that you had hoped they would turn out. Maybe their prayers, prayers that you've prayed a long time that have gone so far unanswered. God perhaps seems distant. You feel trapped by your circumstances. You don't like the situation that you're in, but you know no way to get out of it, no way to change your circumstances. So you ask, God, how have you loved us? Where is the the proof of your love? I don't see any proof from you. Where's the evidence? You know, God's answer to this question in our text is most interesting. It's not what we would expect at all, especially as 21st century Americans. We would expect that someone who truly loves us would would gush about us. They would make much of us. They would go on and on about how lovable you are. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And, and then go on about how, how love-worthy we are. But this is not how God answers the question at all. Here we see the evidence of God's love. Also in verse 2, the tail end of verse 2, God answers their question. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Remember, the question is, how have you loved us? That's God's answer. When I first saw that, I said, Lord, how am I going to explain this to the people? Because this does not sound like love. He doesn't say anything about Israel, how wonderful you are and how beautiful you are and how uh, delightful you are in my eyes, and I just love you so much. He doesn't say anything about that. The Lord answers Israel by pointing to Esau. And this probably takes some uh, explanation. Esau and Jacob, you see, were twin sons of Isaac. Isaac was one of the sons of Abraham, and Abraham was the father of the faithful. Through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came the Lord's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And through Israel came the Messiah, who is Christ. And you can read all about this in the book of Genesis, especially from uh, chapter 12 on, 12 to 27 especially, but beginning at chapter 12 in the book of Genesis, you can read all about that. Throughout the Bible, through Abraham's and his descendants, we see demonstrated the Lord's sovereign elect love. 
That is, the Lord based on nothing outside of himself, but based solely on his sovereign will, chooses whom he will bless, whom he will set his affections upon, whom he will establish a relationship with. So in the Bible, we see that out of all the people on earth, the Lord chose Abraham, chose him out of Mesopotamia. And out of all of Abraham's children, and the Bible mentions eight children, if you see Genesis 25, he had, he had more children than those uh, by his concubine and by his wife. He had some more children after Sarah died. The Lord chose Isaac out of all of Abraham's children. And Isaac was a child that he had promised to Abraham and his wife Sarah, even though she was well past the age of bearing children. So it was a miracle child. And of Isaac's twin sons, the Lord chose Jacob, whom he renamed Israel, and after whom the nation uh, that came from Jacob is named. So in answer to the question, how have you loved us, the Lord says through Malachi, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, your father, but Esau I have hated. Now, there are some things we need to know and keep in mind if we're going to understand the Lord's answer to this question, because I can imagine that this answer could be offensive to some of us. First thing we need to remember is that God is love. God is love. We're told that explicitly in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. If you want to know what love is... Look at God. He is the standard. You see, we err if we take some standard of our own creation, call that love, and then measure God by our standard and determine, God, you're not loving. No, God himself is the standard by which we are to measure love. God is love. Second thing we need to keep in mind is that God's love is not motivated by anything he sees in the beloved. Whereas we love because we find something lovable in the beloved. I remember the first time I met Catherine. She was looking hot. I'm like, I, I knew my mother-in-law. I've known my mother-in-law since I was 15. So I had known my mother-in-law years before I, I met her daughter. And, and I didn't know she had a daughter about my age. And, and my thought was, ooh, I didn't know Mrs. Broom had a daughter. There was something about her that attracted me to her. That's how we are. But God, on the other hand, he sets his affection on a person and a people simply because he chooses to do it. Third thing we need to remember, God is holy. There is no unrighteousness in him. God is light, said the Apostle John, and in him is no darkness, no sin at all. As darkness cannot abide in the presence of light, so sin can't abide in the presence of a holy God. And God is settled in his disposition against sin and unrighteousness. He hates it. He hates it. This means, fourth thing, it is not a shocking thing that God hates. It's not a shocking thing at all that God hates. The Bible tells us all people are sinners because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3 and 23. None is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. Not even one. Romans 3, verses 10 and 12. And God hates sin. Therefore, what was said of Esau, Esau I have hated, can deservedly be said about everybody. It's no shock that God hates. The shock is that he loves. It's not shocking that a holy God who hates sin would say about any sinner, I hate them. The shocking thing is that he would say about any sinner, I love you. 
And then last thing we need to remember is God always does what is right. He always does what is right. He never does what is wrong. In fact, God is the arbiter of right and wrong, good and evil, just and unjust. He himself is the standard by which right is defined and determined. In other words, put it another way, if God does it, it's right. If he says it, it's right. If he commands it, it's right. Because God is the standard by which right and wrong is judged. Again, we can't take a standard that we have created, a definition that we have created, and say this is right, and then measure God by our standard. And because he doesn't measure up to our standard, say, God, you're wrong. No, God is the standard by which we measure right and wrong. You want to know what's right and wrong? Measure it by God. He is the standard. He is the arbiter. He is the judge of what's right and wrong. If you forget these things, God's answer will make no sense to you. It will just be frustrating to you. You'll go away offended, all bent out of shape. If you forget these things, but if you remember these things about God, then God's answer will make perfectly good sense. So the Lord answers Israel's question of how have you loved us by saying, in effect, I chose you. I chose you. In this context, for God to say, I have loved Jacob, is but another way of saying, I have chosen Jacob. And for God to say, Esau, I have hated, is but another way of saying, I have rejected Esau. Again, love has nothing to do with the worthiness of the one who is loved. Therefore, hate has nothing to do with personal animosity in God towards the one who is hated. God's acceptance or rejection is based solely on his sovereign choice. So although Esau and Jacob were twins, and although Esau was the older of the twin, the Lord chose Jacob. And like his choice of Isaac and Abraham, it wasn't because of anything worthy in Jacob. In fact, Jacob was a conniver, a trickster, and a deceiver. He was not a worthy person. But the Lord chose him anyway. Why? Because he wanted to. Because he's God. And the thing I like to think about, to remind myself of, because he's God and because this is his world, and this, this planet, this world, exists in his universe. And if there's anything bigger than the universe, God owns that too. He created it all. He can do what he wants to do. He can do what he wants to do. Think about it. Imagine somebody just come, came up in your house. You've never seen them before. They just walked up in your house, sat down in your chair, turned on your television, put their feet up on your furniture, got a little thirsty, got to walk to your refrigerator, took, took your juice or whatever you have in there to drink, and pour themselves a tall glass of star drink, you'd be indignant. Who are you? What are you doing up in here? Think about it. This is God's universe. He created us. It's his house. And whenever we think we can act independently of God, just do what we want to do without regard for the owner of the house, he's going to be a little indignant. We would be. But this is holy God that we're talking about. We have to keep that in mind. And, and this is a consistent message in Scripture. For the Apostle Paul picks up on this same theme in his letter to the Roman Christians. That's Romans chapter 9. That's in the New Testament, a few books over to your right. You're in Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. In the book of Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 6, we read these words. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel, from, from Jacob, not all who are his, his uh, descendants by blood belong to him. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But and here Paul quotes, through Isaac, your offspring will be named, end quote. This means that it's not the children of the flesh 
who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older that would be Esau, will serve the younger, Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul quotes Malachi here. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And perhaps in your mind you're thinking, well, God is not fair. God is not being just. Paul anticipates this question. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raise you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and hardens whomever he wills. God says, I'll do what I want to do with my creation. And he's the standard by which we measure right and wrong. If God does it, it's right. Amen? The Lord not only loved Israel by choosing her, he loved Israel by not doing to her what he did to Edom. Look again at uh, verse 2. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Edom was an unrighteous nation. Going back to their father Esau, Edom is a nation that came from Esau's descendants. Esau despised his birthright as the older twin, sold it to his brother Jacob for the price of a bowl of stew. We find that in Genesis 25. This means that Esau had so little regard for the Lord that he regarded his stomach's hunger of more worth than the blessing of God. That's why he sold it. He didn't think it was worth anything. It's God's blessing, but he had so little regard for God and his blessing. But then after selling off his birthright, Esau hated his brother and desired to murder him once their father was deceased. That's in Genesis 27. So he had no regard for God, and then he hated his brother to the point of wanting to murder him. But then Esau also married women who were Canaanites, a people who worshiped idol gods. That's the third strike against Esau. Then hundreds of years later, Edom, the nation which came from Esau's descendants, and we find this in Obadiah, verses 10 through 14, Edom sided with Babylon against Judah, God's people. Israel was divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Israel had long since fallen, and Judah was the only one left, and now Judah was getting ready to be conquered by uh, Babylon. And Edom, uh, Israel's cousin, sided with their enemies, sided with Babylon against Judah, gloating over Jerusalem's fall, looting its wealth, and even handing over Judah's refugees to the Babylonians. So God judged Edom, an unrighteous, a wicked nation. Their country was invaded by outsiders, ransacked, and left desolate. And this is what Malachi refers to. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now, Israel was by no means uh, without sin, and Israel was also judged, which is why they went into captivity in the first place. 
That's why the nation fell, because of their sin. But the difference is the Lord restored Israel. The Lord brought them back. But Edom, on the other hand, would never rise again. You can Google it. You can't find Edom. Edom doesn't exist anymore. How have you loved us? God says, I demonstrated my love to you in choosing you as my own. I made you mine, and then I loved you and that you still exist as a nation. I preserved you through and brought you out from captivity. Really, if the Lord did not love Israel, they would have ceased to exist. In fact, this is what God says later in Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse 6. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You better, you better thank me that I love you. Because if I didn't love you, I'd wipe you out. Haven't we felt that some time, way sometimes about our own children? If I didn't love you... I would take you out of this world. When Fred Sanford said, I brought you this world, I'll take you out of this world. <laughs> Maybe I'm too old and no one knows what Fred Sanford is. A funny TV show. YouTube it. Uh, <laughs> so what was Israel's problem? Why would they question the Lord's love for them? Well, if we read the rest of Malachi, we'll find that the Lord was not the one being unloving in this relationship. It was Israel that was unloving. First of all, we see later in this same chapter, their priests were bringing polluted, unworthy offerings before the Lord against his command. In chapter 2, we see that their priests were also neglecting their duties and responsibility as priests of the people. And then later in chapter 2, we see that the people were intermarrying with those outside the faith. They were marrying pagans, marrying idol worship and participating in their idolatry. And then later in chapter 2, we see there was marital unfaithfulness and divorce. And in chapter 3, we see that the people were failing to pay the required tithe for the support of the temple. And in all this, Israel showed an utter disregard for the Lord's covenant with them. So the Lord had not moved. The Lord had not changed. His love for the people had not changed. The evidence of his love was abundant. However, the people had changed in their love for the Lord. You know, if, if God seems distant, if it seems like he's not loving you as you feel he should love you, seems like prayers are just not being heard, that you're just praying in vain. Malachi tells us God has not moved. God has not changed in his affection. His people have changed. What's standing in the way between you and God? Is there some sin you're tolerating in your life? God has given you his word. He's told you what his will is. He's told you right from wrong. Is there any way that you're violating his word, his clear command? God doesn't change. And because he has not changed is why Israel still exists. And because God has not changed is why you're still here and why you're still in the kingdom, why you're still saved. It's why you're not, it's why you're not dead. You know, if you're like me, you can think back. If the Lord had not saved me, what, what would have been different in my life? Where, where could I have been if the Lord had not saved me? And then some of you can tell what, what you were in before the Lord saved you, and the Lord saved you out of that. He loves you. It's clear that he loves you. The evidence is abundant. But if you don't feel that he's loving you, I want to ask you, what's, what's wrong in you? What are you doing that Lord has commanded you not to do? What sin are you tolerating and harboring in your life? The message of Malachi to Israel is that instead of doubting the Lord's love, they should accept the Lord's love and rejoice in the Lord's love. And that's what we see in verse 5, accepting the Lord's love. 
your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Your own eyes shall see this. See what? See how the Lord has dealt with other nations, other peoples who did not acknowledge him. If Israel could move beyond her doubt and cynicism, beyond her self-centered concerns, and look outward and see how the Lord has dealt with other nations, those who were not his people, they would see that the Lord's dominion extends well beyond Israel. His reign is over every nation. Every nation is ultimately accountable to Israel's Lord. They would see the Lord's love evident in the fact that he had not dealt with any nation as he has dealt with his own people. If Israel sees this, what will be their response? Great is the Lord. Great is the Lord. We see this again in chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And if they could see beyond their self-centered interests and see how God has dealt with the other nations, they would realize God's love for them, and they would proclaim with God, He is great. Our God indeed is great, and He rules over all the nations, over all the world, over all the universe. So what does this mean for you and for me? First thing, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you are the object of the Lord's love. More specifically, you are the object of the Lord's love to Abram's offspring, Israel. You're included in this. You're included in the message of Malachi. And he has showed his love for you in choosing you as his own and in preserving you in the faith. I grew up assuming, just assuming, that one could lose one's salvation, that you could be saved today and you could be lost tomorrow. Perhaps you could commit some sin and, and end up lost. You, you could uh, stray in, in some way and, and end up outside of the fold and, and, and ultimately go to hell. That is before I got saved. But, but when the Lord saved me, he gave me to know that he not only saves me, but he keeps me. It is not a matter of me holding on to God, but he holds on to me. He has demonstrated his love in choosing you if you're in Christ, but also in preserving you in the faith. He holds on to you. And Jesus said in John chapter 10, you're in my hands. <laughs> So this is, get out of Jesus' hand, you have to be greater than Jesus. He said, you're in my hands. And then he says, you're in the Father's hands. So in the hands of the Father and the Son. So the only way you can get out of the hands of the Father and the Son, you have to be greater than the Father and the Son. But Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of my hands. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. We're kept in the hands of Christ. But I mentioned that we're included in this. We are included in this. I believe the Bible is a unified story from beginning to end, from Genesis through Revelation, that there's not a separate story here for Israel and a separate story here for Gentiles. I believe it's all God's people from Genesis through Revelation. And this is brought out in Scripture, I believe, in Old and New Testament. But specifically here, I want to read from Galatians chapter 3. And may this encourage you about God's love for you if you are in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 and following. The apostle says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. 
So then, those who are of faith, Jew and Gentile, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Then skip down to verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ into the Messiah, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And we read in the word that the promise was to Abraham and his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God said, Jacob, I have loved. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. This word is to you. He's saying to you, I love you. I love you. And I've shown my love to you is that I love Jacob. I love Jacob. I chose him. And if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. That means he's chosen you, and he keeps you. He preserves you in the faith. Now, if you are outside of Christ, you're not a Christian. There's a serious word for you in this, this passage of Scripture, too. Edom's fate will be your own. Edom's fate will be your own. Look again at verse 4 of our text. This, this verse has stayed with me ever since I began reading and studying this passage. If Edom, Esau's descendants, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. If you are outside God's covenant people, outside of Christ, this verse tells me God is against you. Jacob, I have love. But Esau, I have hated. If you're outside of Christ, you're outside of the people of God, outside of the offspring of Abraham, God is against you. God opposes you. I, I don't know if you appreciate the gravity of that fact. That's an awful, terrible thing to have God against you. Look again at verse 4. I want, you to try, I want to help you see what I, what I saw, and I hope I can help you to feel what I felt. He says, if Edom says we are shattered, they've been overtaken by another country, their country's been ransacked and destroyed, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. They may try to rise, but I will knock them down. I'm not going to let them rise. And they will be called the wicked country, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. That's a terrible, that's an awful thing. That's what he says to Edom. That's what he says to all those outside of Jacob outside of Christ, outside of the covenants of promise, the people whom the Lord is angry with forever. 
somebody might be saying, well, but this is Old Testament. We know that in the Old Testament, God was always angry at somebody, but we're no longer in the Old Testament. We're now in the New Testament. We're in the New Covenant, and God has somehow changed. I want you to see what it says in the New Testament. There are many places I could point to, but what came to me last night is, is chapter 8 of Romans. Romans chapter 8. The closing verses, beginning at verse 31 to the end. And this is not immediately evident, but I, I hope I can help you see what I saw in here. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? And the things that Paul has explained in the verses preceding. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one can be against you. If God is for you, no one can be against you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if God has done the greatest thing that God can do, which is give up his own son, will he not do something lesser? Will he not do something lesser? Will he not graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a passage that many people love, and it's no wonder. It's filled with beautiful, wondrous, joyous truth. But who is this passage addressed to? It's addressed to believers in Christ, God's elect, children of Abraham through faith in Christ. If God is for us, we who are in Christ, no one can successfully, ultimately, be, be against us. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But if you are outside of Christ, flip this upside down. The opposite is also true. That's why I want you to see. The opposite is true. Flip this upside down. If you are outside of Christ, it means God is against you. And if God be against you, it matters not who be for you. If God, by his own sovereign will, is against you, there is nobody, nothing that can help you. You can't prevail against God. You can't fight God. Somebody said, your arms are too short to box with God. You see what he said to Edom? They may, be, they may rebel, but I will tear down again. You say, well, I don't need God. I'm, I'm successful in my job. Yeah, but God can take that job from you. But maybe he won't. Maybe he won't take it from you. Maybe you will continue to be successful. Maybe you will continue to earn lots of money. Maybe you will end up with a beautiful family, have a successful career, have a beautiful, wonderful life, travel all over the world, enjoy life. But this life doesn't last forever. I heard E.V. Hill say one time, people want to talk about relevance, preach something that's relevant. He said, well, if you want to talk about relevance, here's relevance, you're going to die. You're going to die. That's relevant. Nobody's going to live forever. My great-great-grandfather died about two months short of his 101st birthday. His, his uh, second daughter 
My great-great-aunt, she lived to be 100 years old. I have uh, several cousins down that particular strain, my great-great-grandfather's mother's family, that strain, who have lived to 100 and 104 and up into their, up into their 90s. But even with all that living, they eventually died. All of them are dead now. You can't live forever. That was the great discovery when I turned 40 years old. I, I, I knew it intellectually, and, and 40 was not happy for me. I was depressed at 40 for, for, for many reasons. But one of, the, one of the reasons is when I saw that I, I'm 40 years into this, and I projected 40 years ahead, and 40 and 40 is 80. And I said, my Lord, I'm halfway there. I, I'm, I'm at the top of the mountain. I'm on the way down. Because I could look back and I could remember almost 40 years at 40. I, I have memories from when I was a child of five, four, and three years old. I have memories at that point, almost 40 years. And so I knew by looking back, 40 years is not a long time. And if the Lord should bless me with 40 more years, if I should get to 80, not everybody lives that old. That's not going to be a long time. I have since made peace with being on, on this side of 40 and now on this side of 50. I, I've since made, made peace with it, and, and I enjoy it. I, this is a beautiful time of life. But I am, I am quite aware I'm not going to live forever. There are some things I will never accomplish that I wanted to accomplish. Some things I'll never be able to do. There just is not enough time, and I'm, I'm all right with that. Uh, I can see the signs of decay already. Hair is, hair is falling out. There, there's a few gray hairs, not many. They're falling out quicker than they're turning white. <laughs> In this cooler weather, there's certain joints that, that ache. I always uh, drug up on some leaves, some painkiller on Sunday morning, so I won't, my feet won't be aching when I get through with, with church. You know, my eyes aren't what they used to be. I was just at the eye doctor, you know, she's concerned about some changes in my eyes because I can't see, my mother can't see, my father can't see, so I, you know, I'm genetically I'm destined to not see. Uh, so there are signs of decay. There are signs that I'm going to die. And, and, and when you die, and this is the tragedy of it all, if, if you ignore God, I'm going to do my own thing, follow my own way, be successful the way I want to be successful deny him in, in all my ways, maybe even follow other gods, other religions, other faiths. When you die, the Bible says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You're going to stand before the one you've rejected. You're going to stand before the one you've sinned against. You're going to stand before the one you've denied and give an account to him. That should make you terrified. That should make you terrified. If God be against you, it matters not who is for you. And ultimately, you will be separated from the love of God for eternity. Remember, he said, Paul said in Romans 8 at the end, nothing will separate us. And he listed several things. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. That was written to believers in Christ. That was written to those who have faith in Christ, who are included in the family, included in the, in the covenant. Nothing will separate us. But flip that upside down. If you're outside of Christ, that doesn't apply to you. You will be separated from the love of Christ forever. Forever. And what does that mean? It means to be in the place of Esau. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. What does that look like? I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. The people with whom the Lord is angry forever. That's a picture of hell. That's what hell is. It's inhabited by the people against whom the Lord is angry forever. So what can you do? 
that was in the text, accept the Lord's love as demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ. That's where all the Old Testament was pointing to. It's all heading towards Christ. Again, if you see the Bible as a complete book from Genesis through Revelation, the, the, the apex, the, the, apex the, the, the high point, the focus point of all the Bible is Jesus Christ. It's the coming Messiah. That's all the Old Testament is. It's about one who is to come. Beginning in Genesis, it's predicting one who is to come, a redeemer who is to come, a savior who is to come to save us from the penalty of sin, to save us from this, 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 this pit we've fallen into through our father, through our father Adam. It's pointing to Christ, to Christ. Accept the Lord's love is demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, rebels, unworthy, dirty, filthy, offensive, to the holiness of God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For who? For all who will believe. For all who will believe. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Christ. Believe in him. What does it mean to believe on him? It means to believe who he is. He is God, the second person of the Godhead, who became man, who lived and walked among us, who did what we could not do, obeyed God's law perfectly. He never did sin. He fulfilled all righteousness. And then he died on the cross, not, not as a, just a criminal, no, but as a sacrifice, as a substitute. He died in the place of lost sinners. He bore the sins of others. He who knew no sin became sin. That those who trust in him, who he is and what he's done, that, he, that he's borne my sin, that he's died in my place, that he's suffered the wrath of God that, that I deserve. He took the hell that I deserve. Whoever believes on him, as Pastor Thabiti read from John 3, shall not perish, but shall have eternal, everlasting life. Trust in Christ, believe in Christ, embrace Christ. There's nothing you can do. You can't go to church and, and earn it that way. If, if that were the case, I, I, I would certainly have a place in heaven because I've been in church all my life. My folks took me to church before I knew who I was. But there came a time when I had to recognize that I was a sinner apart from God. I had to recognize that I needed a Savior, and I had to recognize that Jesus is the one and believe in him, and trust in him. And something happened when I trusted in him. He changed me inside. I can't explain it, but, but like the old folks used to sing, I looked at my hands. My hands looked new. Looked at my feet. My feet did too. Started to walk. I had a new walk. Started to talk. I had a new talk. What they, what they were trying to express is he changed everything. Everything was different. I didn't see the world the same way. I didn't see myself the same way. I didn't see God the same way. I didn't see the Bible the same way. He changed me. Still the same person, but different. Still me, but, but, but not me. A new me. And the Bible tells me that Christ came in by his spirit, gave me a new nature, gave me a heart that desires him, that loves him, that wants him, that seeks after him, that, that, that hates sin like he hates sin, that grieves over my own sin like he grieves over my sin, that desires to walk in holiness and righteousness as he desires me to walk in holiness and righteousness. And by his power, I'm enabled to say yes to his will. By his power, I'm enabled to obey him and to follow him. Not perfectly, no, but in my heart, I want to. I want to. There's a desire, there's longing there because he changed me. And you can't do that for yourself. You have to trust him. You trust him, I guarantee. He'll do the rest. He'll work it out. He'll change you. And you'll know it's true. You just have to take my word for it. When he does it, you'll know it's true. 
it'll all make sense. It'll all come together. You'll, you'll see things rightly. The Bible will, won't be just a book uh, of ancient literature, but it'll be the Word of God to you. And then you can be assured that these promises to God's people applies to you. Believe in Christ. Trust Him. Receive Him. Do it today. Do it today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. But Father, your word, which is truth, tells me that the natural man cannot accept the things of God, for they're spiritually discerned. That the, the, the God of this world, the enemy, has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they cannot see the light of Christ. God, I pray that you would do a miracle today. I pray that you would cause somebody to see. Open up their eyes. Help them to see Christ as precious to their souls. Help them, Lord, to see themselves as sinners lost and broken and without hope before your judgment seat. Enable them to believe and trust in Christ today. Oh God, do your work. And we'll be so careful to give you all the glory, all the praise, all the honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.